to Sing Ourselves the podcast at the National Maritime Museum. My name's Sharon Waters and I'm an artist and educator based in London. I am joined today by the wonderful Fiona Compton. Hi Fiona. Hi Sharon, how are you? I'm very well, how are you? I'm wonderful. So good to see you. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. For listeners who maybe haven't listened to our earlier episodes, can you just briefly explain who you are and what you do? First of all, why haven't you guys listened to our other episodes? <laughs> <laughs> Secondly, hi everyone. My name is Fiona Compton and I run a platform that's called Noya Caribbean and it's focused on Caribbean history and culture. And it's a platform that was created because I felt that the stories of the Caribbean was very underrepresented and I wanted to show just how dynamic and how necessary it is for us to have a space where we talk about the intricacies of our history and culture. So that's what I do. So today, Fiona, we will be looking at the theme of Christianity in the Caribbean. And we are looking at that in the context of the objects placed in the museum or in the museum collections, I should say. So the pieces that you've chosen are the destruction of the Buena States by the rebel slaves in 1831. And the second is the ordinance of baptism in Jamaica. Let's start with the ordinance of baptism in Jamaica. Can you explain for our listeners what the image actually looks like? A brief description. Well, it's a very powerful image. I had never seen something like that before. And what it is, it's by the seaside, by the water. And there, what looks like, you know, I think maybe almost 100 or so people in the water. It looks like they're all dressed in white and they're being enslaved people or formerly enslaved people. Some of them are on horses, but the majority of them are in two lines. One is men and the other is women. The women have their hair tied and so on, but they're all being baptized by two Christian, European Christian missionaries. And it's quite a long line of people, you know, who have gathered together to be baptized. And I just thought it was extremely powerful to see that because, you know, our relationship with Christianity in the Caribbean is quite strong. Jamaica, for example, has the most churches per square kilometer in the world. And, you know, that that in itself reflects to me a combination of many laws and rules used to indoctrinate Christianity in the Caribbean, but also a reflection of the violence that happened on Jamaican soil to ensure and enforce Christianity. And then to see this mass baptism happen, obviously it looks voluntary here. And, you know, in the description it talks about, part of it says the immersion in the ocean, for example, could enable some Africans to connect baptism with Yemaya, the Yoruba goddess of the ocean and the mother of all life. Now, I thought that an interesting addition into it, but it's also like the complete you know, removal of the violence that's associated with Christianity in the Caribbean and also the hypocrisy of it all in terms of Christianity's huge involvement in the slave trade, the profits that it's made and that so many priests and nuns and, you know, from all different parts of not just the Protestant church, but Catholic faith and so on, were slave owners. And I think it's just interwoven with so much hypocrisy. So... I thought it was a very, very powerful image. What do you think, Sharon? I think it's a really, it depicts African people as very passive. 
And I don't think there's any surprises here with that, just because of the imagery and the propaganda that was touted around at the time and continues to be touted around, to be honest. It feels very, very passive. It feels very, very serene. And there's a definite message of, you know, everyone's ordered, everyone's very willing to take part, look at how we're helping them. It just feels very calm. And that great when you know in context what was really going on at the time. I found the images hugely problematic in terms of what's presented in contrast with what the reality is. It really great. And it makes what we're doing so important. Can you talk about why you actually chose to focus on this theme in particular? This theme is quite important to me because looking at how Christianity is such a strong force in the Caribbean, even looking at some of the statistics about Christianity in the UK, I was looking at some of the statistics. And in accordance to the faith survey, the decline of the UK church membership on British soil is actually huge. And, you know, the church continues to grow and expand in Africa and in the Caribbean. And I think that's really interesting. So, you know, the statistics are like this. The UK church membership has declined from 10.6 million in 1930 to 5.5 million in 2010, or as a percentage of the population from about 30% to 11.2%. And by 2013, it has declined further to 5.4 million or 10.3%. And if current trends continue, membership will fall to 8.4% of the population by 2025. When you look at islands like Grenada, Grenada has a 96% population that identifies themselves as Christian. Mm -hmm. And, you know, looking at the country that really put Christianity so like, fervently into the society of the Caribbean and then now they're not even literally they're not mm. practicing what they're preaching it's almost ironic isn't it it is incredibly <laughs> ironic and you know the thing is like even it goes to say that England has the lowest percentage of the population attending church in 2015 of just 4.7 percent and I mean you know Wales is only 4.8 and Scotland is the highest of 8.9 percent that is that's nothing. Mm. That's nothing. I would really like to know the statistics of how many Caribbean people attend church because it's massive. Like when I went home to St. Lucia this year, I was there for three months and this new church is being built through the pandemic, through this recession. You know, the church is thriving and is a huge, huge, huge facet of society. And it was interesting for me because the way we have this certain fear about Obia, Juju, Voodoo, Santeria, all of these religions that have, you know, roots in Africa and we know nothing about it, right? But we can quote the Bible like no problem. And then we have this fear of it, this association of black magic, that it's negative, it's quote unquote demonic and so on. But if you ask someone, how do you practice Obia in particular? We know very little. We just know you have these charms. We think it's voodoo dolls. But, you know, it's like, you know, voodoo doesn't even have dolls. That's something that actually came from Scotland. But people don't know these things, right? So just how we have a fear of our own spirituality. And then we have become, like, now... The, not the gatekeepers of Christianity, but the ones who are keeping Christianity alive when it's dying in the very place that was pushing so hard to indoctrinate it. So, you know, when you look at some of the laws 
you know, in terms of when I go through the archives and look at some of the punishments that enslaved had to deal with in the Caribbean, a lot of it was they didn't come to church. They would have been whipped or they would have been put in jail or they would have had a lot of horrible things happen to them if they didn't attend church or if they, mm. if they made noise in church or if they came late to church. And it's this relationship that we have the... You know, when we speak about abolition, it's always speaking or the end of slavery in the British colonies. It's all talking about the church and William Wilberforce and so on, but there's not talking about, you know, even in these descriptions here, there's no speaking about the brutality in order to get to this point. So even if, say, for example, that image of the people in the water and they look very peaceful and passive, it could have been, it got to a point that they were made to surrender over the time of all of this brutality because there's so much effort to remove anything. You know, it was illegal to practice any kind of African faith at all across the Caribbean. And what's ironic about it is this, the reason why Obia has been banned was because Every time they had a rebellion, if it was in Dominica in the 1780s, in Jamaica in 1760, with revolt, that's when they're like, oh, we need to ban Obia, and it sets this legislature. So obviously there's a connection between African resistance, African empowerment, and African faith. And so the only thing is funny that we see it as demonic and evil, but it was the very thing that was empowering our ancestors at the time. So, you know, that's why I really wanted to look into Christianity and how it pacified the Caribbean and Africa as well. So just picking up from what you just said, Fiona, it kind of reminds me of when we're not really often questioning exactly what we've been taught and not looking back maybe to our to our ancestors, not looking back to our own heritage, to our own cultural thoughts and not seeing them as enough. How do you feel about that as a kind of idea? I mean, the thing is, the question has come up that, okay, we look at our ancestors. Some people are embarrassed to say that their ancestors were enslaved. Some people look at it as a positive thing. Some of them romanticize it. You know, there's lots of different emotions. Mm. But the question that I always pose is that if you think that Obia is demonic or voodoo is demonic or any of the African spiritual religions are demonic, you know, within Yoruba culture and the Orishas and so on, if you think that's demonic, do you think that your ancestors were demonic as well? Is that the perception that you have of them? Or what? I find it very difficult because I grew up in a Christian household. Mm-hmm. I didn't question the thing. It just was, right? And I mean, we weren't devout. We just used to go to church twice a year and whatever. But it was still something that was just, it is what it is. And I think a lot of people in the Caribbean, you tend to go through a phase of anti-Christian stuff when you want to turn Rasta, right? So when you come <laughs> to convert to Rastafarianism, everyone goes through a short phase of that. But then you still fall back into its really strong within our community Christianity and I feel like the irony is that it became a crutch Mm. 
So when you think about what they say, Negro spirituals, it's, you know, Amazing Grace, which ironically was written by, you know, a slave trader, John Newton, who towards the end of his life became an abolitionist. But, you know, he did several journeys to the Caribbean transporting enslaved people. And he also wrote Amazing Grace during that time. So that's one of the pinnacles of the songs that we sing in mm. black churches. I'm still a little bit stunned by that. I didn't realize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, me yeah. too. Wow. Me too. Me too. And I mean, he was also enslaved himself in Africa. But, you know, it was just incredibly interesting how the very thing you know, Christianity was also used as a means to validate enslavement because they said this was a way that we can Christianize the heathens. This is how we can do it. So during enslavement, we have to make sure, like, for example, the Catholic Church ensured that in the Côte Noire, that as soon as they touched Caribbean soil, they had to be baptized within a week. Otherwise, you'd be charged. That was their way of validating the things that they were doing. So, I mean, obviously, this is things that we were not taught and I just find it ironic that the very thing that they used to enslave our ancestors has become such a massive crutch for us. Like, mm. that's the one thing that we don't want to let go of. It's like within our communities, we do say, oh, you know, white people did this and you did slavery that and it's all this racism. But we hold on to Christianity like the hardest. That's something that you cannot question within the Caribbean or within the Afro-Caribbean diaspora. And I find it very difficult that we see ourselves, I think that's the one in terms of, yes, in terms of looking at our beauty standards and they're very Eurocentric and that's another issue. And that's also one of the reasons why you did this seeing ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. But then also uh, the relationship with our internal spirituality and those kind of things and how you connect to whatever higher powers you want to in whatever way. And that we do it through this gateway, which has such a violent and horrific history. You know, I mean, I find this image particularly difficult because this is during a time when the whole compensation is happening because this is like in the late 1830s, so emancipation has happened. So some of these people would be apprentices. Some of them would have been recently liberated, but they did grow up or live their life in enslavement. And to know that there were hundreds of people, priests, ministers, so on, who claim compensation because they were slave owners themselves. And then you're just there baptizing people and saying, okay, you know, the God saves, God saves, God saves, but then you will murder people and do so much horror in the name of God. So it's really hard for me to see like our community hold on like so strong to this I find that image very painful to look at, actually. I don't see any beauty. And I'm sure seeing everyone dressed in white and their heads tied. And of course, there would have been singing and all of these kind of things. But I don't see, I don't feel anything beautiful in it at all. And if we could talk a little bit about the colour palette used for this piece, because visually, obviously, people are listening to us, so they won't be able to see. We've described, obviously, that there are two rows of people of enslaved people and it's on a beach and it's in water and it's set in Jamaica but can you explain a little bit more because it's black and white isn't it yes it's black and white it's done in what looks like pencil mm -hmm. and you know you see in different parts where you can definitely see like it's somewhere hot because you can see they have like coconut trees and stuff in the back and there's also you know boats out in the bay 
as well. And that just also goes to show there's some kind of, there's shipping, there's merchants, there's trade. So obviously the trade is happening, the whole back and forth across the Atlantic is happening. And also, you know, I think when you think about it, this is the Atlantic that is connecting them back to Africa, but now it's used as a means to baptize them into Christianity, which is the opposite of what they know. And I find it so interesting that in the description, they talk about Yemiah and it's actually removing the concept of Yemiah in the process of being baptized or going into the water and so on. And the very thing that is the one gateway back to your homeland and then it's now actually washing away your homeland. So, yeah, I, it's, I think it's a very, very difficult image for me to look at. And can you explain a little bit about the concept of Yemiah? Please. Well, Yemiah, she is a spirit, a spirit of life. She's from the Orisha religion, that's Yoruba, that comes from mainly Nigeria, which is West Africa. And of course, there were so many people who came from the region who came across a different different periods, right? Because sometimes there you would get more people from the Gold Coast, sometimes you get more people from Nigeria. But within that, the Orisha religion is like the foundation of Santeria, which you'd find in places like Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Cuba, and stuff like that. But she's a goddess that comes from water. She's a deity that comes from water. She's very powerful and very beautiful and has nothing to do with Christianity at all. <laughs> so... But yeah, I mean, the thing is, you're starting to find like an upsurge in the interest and wanting to know more about the Orishas, especially because it's been quite popularized by people like Beyonce and stuff like that. You'd find Beyonce encompassing Oshun, which is another goddess with her in the yellow and stuff like that. You find a lot of a lot of that now more in popular culture, but there is still this holding on to Christianity regardless. So it, it almost feels like a little bit like a, like a trend, mm-hmm. a little bit but I'm hopeful that people will start to take a bit more interest in learning a little bit more because I think it's really beautiful when you look at, you know, the offerings that they do, when you look at when they say, oh, these things are very demonic and so on. It's like offerings like getting flowers, a piece of cake, Mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying, candles, and putting it out into the ocean as an offering to say thank you. How is that demonic? How is that evil in the same way that you go to a church altar and you look at a church altar, it has candles, it has flour, it has wine. It's very similar. It's just done in a different pattern. We do offerings all the time in Christian church. So I just don't see why. Not that I don't see why, but if you look more at the details of something, there's so much beauty in these African religions. And I just want to kind of encourage that kind of, just to look into it a little bit more. So the second piece we are looking at from the collection is the destruction of the Boyne Estates by the rebel slaves in 1831. Can you talk to us a little bit about this watercolour piece that we're looking at currently, Fiona? So it's a very naval kind of pro-British, kind of something you'd see like in the National Maritime Museum. So it's a watercolour and it's once again taken from the perspective of by the water. And you can see in the background, there's loads of green lush mountains and so on. And then low down on the bottom, near to the bay, there's all of these estate houses on fire. There's some boats on fire. And then there is this boat of about maybe 10 or so naval officers with this British flag, you know, flowing, making its way towards this 
towards the fire and destruction and so on. But even to me, the thing about it is that the mountains and stuff are like so huge in the painting. The water is like a huge part of it. And then there's like several huge houses that are on fire, like a blaze in the fire. But the thing I see the most is the British flag. Because it's like right in the front. It's not in the middle, but it's right there. And it is a fraction of the size next to everything else. But that's the first thing I see. So from an artistic perspective, it's very well executed in terms of that even despite all of the grandness of the mountains, you know, the ferocity of the flames and everything, the British flag is still stronger than all of that. That's what I gathered from this painting. And, you know, in terms of the historical context of it, is one of the most important acts of resistance by enslaved people in the Caribbean, which is the Baptist Day Rebellion. Well, it's a Christmas Day Baptist Rebellion. And the reason why I chose this one is because of its links to Christianity. So yes, we're seeing all of these, you know, the British coming in to stop this rebellion. It says, the devastation of the Boina State by the rebel slaves, right? But the complete removal of is context that it was started by a Baptist minister, an enslaved minister. So once again, that kind of dichotomy that exists between you're a Baptist minister speaking about the grace of God and the goodness of God and all these kind of things like that, but you are enslaved. And you know the thing about what the British government had done is that the enslaved were not allowed to gather at all for any other social gatherings other than going to church. So that's one of the reasons why when we talk about, you know, in terms of the violence and the kind of brutality that is surrounding Christianity and how it's manifested today with Jamaica having more churches per square kilometer in the world. These are some of the reasons as to why, you know, and even kind of even when you're extending out and looking at how, you know, Jamaica is so heavily criticized for being homophobic, we have to look at how the British government's involvement in that through its very brutal and heavy indoctrination of Christianity and how this once again has manifested today and their complete absolution from that, you know? So when we look at this, Sam Sharp was a young 27-year-old Baptist minister. They said he was greatly charismatic, a wonderful preacher, wonderful speaker, and he wanted to do a peaceful you know, a strike for better conditions and so on. And it developed from, when you look at Jamaica, obviously the enslaved weren't really allowed to, to be mobile, to communicate via, you know, writing, reading and so on, or to travel from different place to place. And the drum was banned, blowing the conch shell was banned, so therefore communication through long distances, all of that was banned. But somehow, on an island with 300,000 enslaved, this rebellion had 60,000. I mean, when people talk about Wembley Stadium having 10,000 people, it's so huge, right? It's 60,000 people. And I think, so as much as this British flag seems so, so strong and imposing on this whole image, I see greatness in this. Because I see Sam Sharp in this image. I see this young man who believed in something and actually, the reason why the resistance happened is because of him being a Christian and in him reading the Bible, the very Bible that they, you know, they put upon the Caribbean and him seeing that the right for freedom, the right for equality. 
and that Christianity was the foundation of this resistance. But this is not written in the description. I want to give you a huge thank you for that <laughs> interpretation of the piece because I have to be honest, I, I've really struggled with this piece because of the complete negation of Sam Sharp. Like visually, you don't see a single black person. It doesn't feel like it's a rebellion. I felt very, very negative towards it. So I'm thanking you for helping me to see it through a completely different lens and a lens that is far more empowering than I kind of entered this space with this morning. It's a very pompous image. It is really pompous and hugely prob problematic. doesn't even come close to describing mm. how, how this image is. How do you manage to to continue to look at things in a in a positive light despite the evident propaganda so many of these pieces from the collection pose i do because i have to so for example the one that we're looking at of the baptisms is very difficult for me to find positivity in that one but when it comes to acts of resistance obviously any resistance, even like when you look at the description here, it goes on to see about how many enslaved were killed in this resistance and so on, and that focus, right? But, you know, I like digging into the details. So, you know, for example, this rebellion cost the British government in today's money, I think it's about 52 million pounds. Wow. And because the destruction was far and wide and... It was actually one of the, the caveats to the beginning of abolition because they understood that slavery was no longer functional and in, in their eyes safe for them because of the extent of this rebellion that happened in 1831 and it happened on Christmas Day as well. So it has so many things. When you think about this is Christmas Day, like you know, Jamaica is like a blaze set on fire, everything like that. I have to, I have to look for it. I have to look for Sam Sharp. You know, I think the reason why I do it, because I need to do it. Because even if you don't know the details about slavery, growing up as somebody black, growing up in the Caribbean, or not growing up in the Caribbean, doesn't matter, you still know or feel certain things that are irrefutable. How you feel about something is irrefutable. So I have to dig a little bit deeper in order to find myself and see myself, even in very pompous images like this, because that's my, it's like a mode of survival for myself. So the discomfort that I get going into museums like the National Maritime Museum and not seeing myself or seeing images like this where the British flag is like, overshadowing the vastness of, you know, the mountains of Jamaica that are thousands of feet high. And this little flag still overshadows all of it. I have to like put on a microscope and look in to find myself. I'm like, ah, I'm there. We actually did things. I do it because I have to, that's why. And it's a form of self-preservation, isn't it? But it's also done for our ancestors and for our future generations, the work that you do and the approach that you take to the work? Because the thing is, is that we don't have a say in how we were documented those hundreds of years ago. What we have is writings by white men, paintings by white men, drawings by white men. So I have no choice either 
to go through. So when you look at when it described the rebellion, it's always, you know, they talk about like the ingratitude of the Negroes and all those kind of things like that. And I don't see ingratitude. I see recognition of their self-worth, actually. You have to even kind of put like a, a different pair of glasses on and translate what they're saying because they speak, of course, in very disparaging ways. So when you talk about ingratitude, I'm seeing resistance. I'm seeing empowerment. I'm seeing enough is enough. I'm seeing us uh, standing up for ourselves. You know, sometimes I've come across people talk about they're embarrassed that their ancestors were enslaved. So therefore, finding an image like this, I have to pique my curiosity to look deeper, as you said, to see myself in a different way because it is for my preservation and for what am I teaching my child? I would not feel comfortable bringing my son to the museum and showing him this painting properly without contextualizing it. I think when we've been and we've seen parents bring their young black children or mixed race children here and it's not properly contextualized, it can be very, very damaging. I know that when we were in the Atlantic Room the last time, there was a young woman with her mixed race son and, you know, I, it was very hard for us, right? Because seeing that, that little boy, the images that he saw of himself and that he had no control or say, or I think he, I, I don't know, it, it made me feel sad for him that, you know, that part of him was very diminished in this environment that was very controlled from a very white lens and that his mother was not able to contextualize things for him or to empower him, you know? And yeah, so I think that's why I have to put a microscope and look really, really, really harder into images like that. Thank you so much, Fiona, not just for recording these episodes, but for the work you continue to do. You've helped me to see things very, very differently in this episode in particular. And yeah, I just, I have so much to process and think about, and I'm sure our listeners do too. Thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. You've been listening to the Seeing Ourselves podcast, hosted by me, Sharon Walters. I'm a London-based artist whose practice includes hand-assembled collages celebrating black women. You can find my work on Instagram by heading to London underscore artist one or by visiting my website, londonartist1.com.